Welcome to the Hills. Uh, we're a church in Fort Worth, Texas. I know you're watching online around the world. Thank you for joining us. Also, I'm talking to a lot of people at West Fort Worth campus and South Lake campus, and I'm delighted that you're with us as well. I just have to say, I'm so thrilled that the ladies had such an amazing conference. 1,500 women, uh, 200 volunteers, three ladies got baptized, and there were an army of us who weren't here but were praying, and God showed up in a great way. It makes me excited for the student and men's conferences that are coming up as well. So one of the great things about being an empty nester is that I can now tell stories about my children, and I don't have to worry about their feedback when I go home, okay? So I'm going to start with two. The first is when my oldest son, Michael, was about three or four years old, and he was in a program during the week at the North Richard Hills campus called Young Children's World. He wasn't acting properly, and so his teacher corrected him, and he said, I don't have to mind you. And she said, yes, you do. And he said, no, I don't. My daddy is the boss of this church. Well, this brilliant teacher brought him up to my office, and we had a heart-to-heart and made it clear that he did need to mind his teacher. But I thought later, where did he get that idea? He has never heard his mother or father say that daddy is the boss of the church. So fast forward a few years when my youngest Matthew is five years old. He's in the car with his mother. He turns to her and asks, Mama, is daddy the boss of the church? And she said, well, no, honey, Jesus is the boss of the church. And he kind of rolled his eyes and said, yeah, I know, I know. But seriously, daddy is the boss of the church. She said, well, actually, the elders are the boss of the church. And now he's totally frustrated. He said, okay, but really, daddy is the boss of the church. And she said, well, you know, honey, the Bible says if you want to be the most important person, then you should be the servant of everybody. He turned to the window with a scowl and muttered under his breath, then why would anybody want to be the boss of the church? (laughs) Now, where did my kids pick up that thought? I would suggest it's the culture that they lived in because everywhere you go, whether it's in the school or the ball field or the marketplace or the bedroom, there are frequent and often heated conversations. Who's the boss? And I'm going to suggest today that that conversation should go whenever the kingdom comes. So we're in this series, Kingdom Come, listening to the very words of Jesus of why the king came. We're going to enter now into a conversation that happened in Mark chapter 9. Have you ever had a conversation interrupted by someone who says, what are you talking about? And you don't want to tell them because you're embarrassed about what you're talking about. That awkward moment is recorded in Mark 9. It says, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. And sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Now, you would think that would settle and end all who's the boss conversations. But the spirit of who's the boss is so pervasive. It's just hard to imagine reality without it. So it's just one chapter 
later that James and John come up to Jesus and say, now, when you set up your kingdom, we know you're going to be boss. But could we be like second boss and third boss? Since when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. You know why? Because they wanted to be second and third boss. Because after all their time with Jesus, they still had boss ambition. So Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Okay, and here it comes, right out of Jesus' own mouth. Why did he come? Here's another statement. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the Gospels don't depict a Messiah who's befuddled and confused and never meant to launch a worldwide movement. No, the Gospels depict a Messiah who is absolutely clear about his identity and his mission. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And did you notice that in the midst of these conversations, Jesus does not rebuke his disciples for wanting to be great? You know why? Because God has put that in your heart. God has wired into our hearts a desire to want to do something important with our lives. Something that is going to really matter and we want to be good at it. And so life in the kingdom does not remove the desire for greatness. But it reframes the definition of greatness. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Now, when disciples get this wrong, things go very wrong. I've seen it over and over in church life, and you have too. I will tell you that almost all church arguments and splits and fights are about who's the boss arguments. Now, we will baptize it and call it something else, but really it's down to who's the boss there was a church in a town called Philippi, and Paul wrote them a letter because they were having a lot of tension, and it came down to two women in the church that were fighting. Paul even calls them out. Their names were Yodia and Syntyche. Now, I don't know what they were fighting about, maybe who had the worst name, but I know at the end of the day, it was an argument about who's the boss. And Paul calls them out. Could you imagine me doing that today? Could you imagine me standing up and saying, okay, we got some tension in our church, and you and you are the problems. And you need to get it together because it's messing up all of us. See, if you're an apostle, you've got job security. I don't have that kind of power. <laughs> but what he does is he goes right to the root of the problem and undermines all who's the boss talk by looking at Jesus. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset 
as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Now, we're talking about why did Jesus come? But this is important. We must connect why he came to how he came. He didn't just come wrapped in flesh. He came wrapped in a towel. He who was higher than everybody chose to come lower than anybody. Now, remember, Jesus said the disciple cannot be above the teacher. So if Jesus is the teacher and the disciple cannot be above the teacher and the teacher is a servant, what does that make the disciple? You got to understand that when Jesus came down, he really, really came down. He came to bring a kingdom that operates on a completely different principle. The principle that the path to greatness is through serving. And even the king is not exempt. The king did not come down and say, this is how you have to do it. The king says, this is how I'm going to do it. And you follow my example. And what that means is that whenever the kingdom comes, who's the boss conversations leave? Because in his kingdom, servant is the only identity. Now, there are many job descriptions in the kingdom, but they're just one row. We're not disciples because we serve. We serve because we are his disciples. We serve because we are followers of a servant king. I want to show you a verse I have read all my life. And this week I saw it in a completely new way. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, I always got that part. I always knew Jesus is Lord is the first and only sermon. But I didn't get the second part. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. See, we have two messages we go to the world. We go to the world with the message, Jesus is Lord, and we're here to serve you for his sake. That's the message. You see, when Jesus saves us, he leaves us with a greater purpose than just to avoid sinning. Jesus didn't say, okay, I'm going to come back. You huddle up in a little group and just try not to sin till I get back. He didn't just save us from something. He saved us for something. And the Bible says that he poured into us his own servant spirit, the Holy Spirit, to equip and enable and empower us to live into our identity as servants. 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. 
That's heavy. What Peter just said is, if you're not serving, you're not stewarding grace very well. Did you hear that? You are not being a faithful steward of God's grace if you're not serving other people. And our failure to get this, that our fundamental identity is servant, explains some of the peculiar language you hear in church world. For example, for my, all my years as a pastor, I've heard the phrase, well, they are inactive members of the church. What in the world is an inactive member? You talk about the ultimate oxymoron. Do you have any inactive members of your body? If I wake up in the morning and I cannot move my left arm and it's totally paralyzed and Jamie says, honey, what's the matter? No big deal. Just got an inactive member. (laughs) I'm getting to the hospital. That's a big deal. And the very fact that we have that phrase in church world, inactive member, is an indictment against us that we have failed to grasp our fundamental identity in the kingdom as servants. There's another phrase you hear in church world. We're church shopping. Just think about what that means. Why do I shop? I shop to go to a place that has products and services where I can get the best value at the least cost. That's what I do. And we've got a a generation of, of Christians in America who think the job of the church is to serve me and give me products. And if I don't like what they're doing, I'll go to the franchise down the street. And the very fact that that phrase even exists is an indictment against our failure to understand our fundamental identity in the kingdom as servants. Instead of asking, what can the church do for me? We're supposed to be asking, what can the church do through me? That's one reason we made a fundamental change in our student ministry about two years ago. There's been some very hard, clear data recently investigating why so many people grow up in churches like ours and they leave home and go off to college and they drop out of church. And many drop out of faith. And they have found that the young people that stick in church, there were two constants. They had the regular practice of intergenerational worship. And they were serving actively in their church when they left home. See, in most churches, you take young people and you put them off in the side and you do for them and they hang out only with themselves and they leave home. And guess what? They don't need to go to church to find community with their peers. They need to go to church to find a community filled with the Holy Spirit they can serve with. I'm saying to all of you families right now, I cannot say this strongly enough. If you have young people in your house, every week you get them in church with people older and younger and them and worship God with your kids. And then you and your kids go and serve others so that when your child leaves your home, their fundamental identity as a Christian is, I'm a servant in the church of Jesus Christ. You know what? That identity doesn't change when we scatter. Wherever you go this week, you go as a representative of the kingdom, a servant of Jesus. Dan Cathy is the CEO of Chick-fil-A. 
He was out in Southern California seeing some new uh, stores they were building, and he visited a well-known pastor named Rick Warren. Well, they were out of one of the construction sites, and they got hungry. So they walked across the street to Taco Bell, their competitor. And they went in to wash their hands. Rick washed his hand, looked down, and Dan has taken some extra towels, and he is cleaning the sinks in the bathroom of the Taco Bell. And Rick says, what are you doing? And Dan says, Rick, we teach our employees, you leave every place you go better than you found it. He never forgot his fundamental identity. Wherever you are, you're a servant for Jesus Christ. And by the way, I hope he gets this tape because I'd like a chicken biscuit. <laughs> Love those things. So men's conference, Bob Goff is coming back and he has said many powerful things. My all-time favorite Bob Goff line is this one. Stop calling it ministry and start calling it Tuesday. I love what he's saying there. That it doesn't matter where you are, it doesn't matter what you're doing, your fundamental identity is servant of Jesus Christ. You never lose your identity. Because you're taking the kingdom with you wherever you go. And you never change the way you take the kingdom. Because serving is the only strategy in Jesus' kingdom. And this is so important. Because there's a lot of people, and probably with good intent, they want to advance the kingdom by hijacking the way the kingdom advances and they do it by bringing back boss talk <coughs> that's what the disciples wanted to do but jesus when you set up your kingdom we're going to kick out these romans they have oppressed us they have uh burdened us but we're going to kick them out and we're going to have the power they've been telling us how to do and what to do and it's going to be our turn and we're going to tell people how to do and what to do right they simply wanted to baptize the old system with a new set of rulers they thought the goal was to have the power and from top down to change the world by telling people how it was going to be you see jesus had faced that temptation already Jesus had the option to run all the kingdoms of the world the way he wanted. This past week, I was in Washington, D.C. I had the privilege to address uh, Christian CEOs who want to make a difference in the marketplace. I stayed one block from the White House. And you cannot go to Washington, D.C. and not just sense the spirit of power in the world. In the air. I mean, if New York worships money and if Hollywood worships sex, Washington, D.C. worships power. And you can't go and not be impressed by all the buildings and all the monuments. And, and it did make me very grateful to be a citizen of this nation and thankful for our democratic system. But I couldn't help but think, now, if Jesus wanted to do it this way, what would his capital look like? How impressive would it be if Jesus wanted to rule the world from the top down? But he didn't. He didn't go that way. And please hear me. I am not saying that a Christian should not pursue a position of leadership. 
I think it's a wonderful thing if a Christian has a chance to be a teacher or an administrator or a coach or a business owner or even a politician. I'm not saying a Christian should avoid a position of leadership. I'm saying what we must avoid is exchanging servant strategy for power strategy. That's not how the king did it. You know how the king did it. He did it by serving and by dying for others. And you cannot bring the kingdom to a place in a way different than the king brought it. Man, you want to be a leader of your home? You want to be a great husband, a great father. Here's what it means. You die to yourself more than anybody in the family. You empty yourself more than anybody else. You are the biggest boldest servant in your home. That's what it means. That's how Jesus did it. And guess what? It works. There is a certain undeniable and unassailable moral authority that is granted to people who live lives of service. I tell a story about Booker T. Washington, the great African-American educator, president of Tuskegee Institute, walking through a part of town and a white woman who did not know who he was. I cringe even to say this. She walks up to him and asks if he would like to make a few extra dollars chopping some wood for her. He had some time on his hand. He rolled up his sleeves. He chopped the wood. He brought it into her house. Her daughter was home and recognized the famous educator. She was embarrassed, told her mother, who was appalled. The next day, she shows up in his office to profusely apologize. He stands up, sticks out his hand, and says, It's never a bad thing to do something kind for a new friend. And that woman went on to become one of his greatest financial investors and recruiters. Now, I'll be honest, I tried to research. I can't verify if that story is true. It's told in all of his uh, biographies. I can verify this story. So some years back, Mother Teresa was asked to speak at the National Prayer Breakfast. Here's this tiny little woman who can barely stand up over the microphone. And she stands before the most powerful people in the world. And you know what she chose to talk about? The evil of abortion. She told that audience, if you don't want those babies, give them to me. I will take care of them. She spoke to an audience, most of whom disagreed with her position. And no one dared stand up and speak against her. They stood up and applauded her. Because what they had to admit, although she had no power, she had moral authority to speak to power. And power could only listen. This is how the kingdom comes. Nicholas Kristof is a writer for the New York Times. And he talked about how in the elite circles that he lives, it's very, very popular to mock conservative Christians. But he wrote in the paper, in reporting on poverty, disease, oppression, I've seen so many others, evangelicals, who are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities, hunger, malaria, prison rape, human trafficking, genocide, 
Some of the bravest people you meet are evangelical Christians who truly live their faith. Now, I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. And Jesus said, not so with you. I'm not sending you out to seek and gain power and force your views on the world. I'm sending you out with a towel. And from the bottom up, we're going to change the world through a reborn community of faithful servants. That is how he came. And that is how the kingdom comes. And you'll see one more example of that now. I want you to watch a video and meet our newest missionary from the Hills Church. Well, everyone, uh, meet Dr. Kent Brantley, uh, who will soon be uh, one of the newest missionaries supported by our church, along with his wife, Amber, and he'll be joining his cousin, uh, Dr. Stephen Snell and Amy. And we know Stephen and Amy. They've been a part of our church for a long time. And uh, although many of you may not have met Dr. Brantley, I know most of you have heard of him. And uh, I want to take just a moment, Kent, to explore your story a little bit and your witness. Well, the first time many in listening now heard your name was when you were in Liberia and you contracted the Ebola virus. Uh, I know that's a hard thing to revisit, but if you don't mind, when you learned that you had contracted Ebola, what went through your mind and how did your faith uh, sustain you or guide you in the days ahead? My first response when, when my friend standing outside my window told me that my test was positive for Ebola, my first response was from my doctor mind, okay, what's, what's next? What's our plan? What are we going to do? And then I immediately thought of my wife and my children who were back here in Texas. And I said, how, how am I going to tell Amber? Um, that night as I called my family members and told them, the news. I identified a lot with the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told the king, our, we know that our God can save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to that idol. I knew that God could save me from Ebola, but even if he didn't, I did not want to be the guy who was faithful to the point of taking his family to Africa who then gave up in the end because he got sick. I desperately wanted to be faithful to whatever the end would be. When you did uh, get well, uh, you had this platform you had never asked for and you could keep practicing medicine or you could use this platform uh, to, to redeem your illness. And so walk us through that season of your life. Just as we had, it, it was like we, when we set out to Liberia, we told God, we just want to tell people about you. And it's as if God said, oh, really? Here, try this platform. Try telling millions of people about me. But it also meant being faithful to the opportunity to remind people that we have to choose to respond out of compassion rather than out of fear. That we have to recognize that 
the people on the other side of the world are not the other far away. They are our neighbors. And Jesus gave us the command very clearly, love your neighbors as yourself. Okay, and as I mentioned earlier, along with the Stales, you and Amber plan to go back to Africa, this time to Zambia, as medical missionaries. Tell us a little bit about what you will be doing there. We will be joining with Stephen and Amy to work at Mukingi Mission Hospital. So we will be joining the staff at Mukingi Hospital to serve in a place where medical care is hard to find. Okay. Well, I know this next question is going to make you feel uncomfortable because I've heard you say that especially during your time with illness, you were the one who was served. But the reality is you do have a skill set that could afford you a very comfortable life. And nobody would think less of Dr. Kent Brantley if he never went back to medical missions. But you are. And so I just have to ask, what motivates you to, to serve and to use your gifts this way? Rick, God, God placed a calling on our lives. He's placed a calling on all of our lives. He said the two most important things in life are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Our, our desire to go serve in Zambia is because we want to be faithful to that calling that God has given us. It is no sacrifice to serve Jesus. That's beautiful, King. And I want to thank you for your time. And I want you and Amber to know, along with Stephen and Amy, you will be in our prayers and our thoughts and we are here to serve you while you serve others. Blessings Thanks. to you, my friend. Thank you. Amen. Nobody would think less of Dr. Kent Brantley if he never again did medical missions. He could take his skill set and live a very self-serving life. But he won't because he cannot forget his fundamental identity. And you shouldn't either. So wherever you go this week, wherever you work, wherever you study, you are a servant of Christ. He didn't come just to get people into heaven. He came to bring heaven into the world. He came to bring a kingdom that would bless as far as the curse is found And he came to bring a foretaste of the day when the curse would no longer be found. But we cannot divorce why he came from how he came. He came not to be served, but to serve. And so that means, where do you want the kingdom to go? Send the servants there. We must send the servants wherever we want God to send the kingdom. You want a better jail system? Send the servants. You want a better marketplace? Send the servants. You want better schools? That's why we support Teen Life. That's why we have people mentor in Academy 4. It's why we send tutors to River Tree Academy. That's why we do Beach Club. You want better schools? Send the servants. Send the servants wherever you want God to send the kingdom. God's sending you this week. So instead of saying, who's the boss? Ask, who can I bless?
Where can I wear a towel? In Jesus' name, who can I serve? That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. I'm going to just share one more verse with you. It's one of those little verses that you can read quick and miss it. But every time I do, I get goosebumps. Jesus is talking to his disciples about his return. He said, be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you were waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in. The moment he arrives and knocks, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. And I tell you the truth, here it is. Here's where I get goosebumps. You ready? He himself will seat them, put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. Did you hear what I just read? Jesus cannot wait to come back to serve you. He cannot stop being who he is. He cannot stop being a servant. And neither should you. Pray with me. So God, I confess, I didn't say anything profound this morning. This was not one of those kind of sermons where there was some new thought no one's ever had before. This, this is a sermon where I just said what we already know. But I, I know that the Spirit says in the Scriptures that part of the job of a pastor is just to remind the people of what they already know. So they'll do something with it. And so I hope I've been faithful to that, God. And I pray now that your Holy Spirit will come into our hearts with this question. What are you going to do this week with what you already know? And so, God, please give us this week especially acute vision to see where we can put on a towel, grab a basin of water, and bring the kingdom by serving someone. And we pray in his name. Amen.